even if humans and chimpanzees did share 99% of their DNA, it would still be biologically and mathematically impossible for a change of 1%, which is 30 million base changes, to occur in the supposed 6 million years since our species split. Hello and welcome to the Millennial Apologist Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan, and this is our third and final episode in a series dealing specifically with atheism. And in this episode, we are going to be dealing primarily with the concept of Darwinian evolution, which I believe is the gateway to atheism. And I believe evolution is the gateway to atheism because it posits that we essentially created ourselves. It leads to the belief that there is no need for a creator, but rather we are the result of time plus chance and natural laws. Before diving into this subject, it is necessary to define what we mean when we use the word evolution. Biologists usually distinguish between what is termed microevolution and macroevolution. Microevolution is minor variation, such as certain dogs having different fur texture or birds having different beak sizes and macroevolution is large-scale modifications that change organisms into completely different kinds of organisms, such as amphibians turning into reptiles or molecules changing into men. Microevolution is observable and repeatable, therefore it is a scientific belief in which nobody denies. Everybody knows you can selectively breed dogs to concentrate certain characteristics. Macroevolution is where the disagreement takes place between creationists and evolutionists because macroevolution has never been observed and therefore it is not a scientific belief but a philosophical one. Because science is a search for truth by repeated, observable experimentation and macroevolution supposedly takes place over thousands and thousands of years, by default it is impossible to observe macroevolution in the present and therefore it is a philosophical belief which requires faith to accept. Hence, the best we can do is examine the evidence we have available to us today and determine if it better supports the evolutionary hypothesis of life or the creation hypothesis of life. It must be noted that evolutionists will often equivocate the terms microevolution and macroevolution in order to convince others that we see evolution taking place all around us, but this is a disingenuous word game. We must be very careful to define our terms when discussing the subject of evolution because as stated earlier, no one denies that microevolution or variation among organisms takes place. The real question is whether or not we can extrapolate this evidence to assume that these minor changes eventually add up to changes so drastic that they have been able to change a single cell into an elephant over millions of years. So let's first start by examining what the atheist or evolutionary hypothesis of origins is. So the atheist hypothesis basically states that approximately 14 billion years ago, the universe came into existence from nothing. 4.5 billion years ago, Earth formed. 3.5 billion years ago, spontaneous generation, which was an idea shown to be impossible in the 1800s, led to life arising from non-life. While the first life was likely a single-celled organism which began to reproduce, over millions of years, the DNA in that organism began to change by random mutations, which are basically mistakes in the copying of DNA. These mutations added information to the DNA to the point where every cell, tissue, 
organ, and organism came about by no intelligence whatsoever. DNA mutated to produce new physical characteristics in organisms, and it is assumed that the most fit organisms survive to reproduce more than the lesser fit organisms, which is where the term survival of the fittest comes from. Because all life is related in this hypothesis, and even human beings are distant cousins to bananas, as the atheist posits, the atheist view of origins results in an imaginary tree of life, and this is often referred to as Darwin's tree of life, tracing the idea back to the first major proponent of evolution, Charles Darwin. In the tree of life, the first organism to exist would represent the very base of the trunk of the tree. Then, the evolution from single-celled organisms to multicellular organisms would represent the upper part of the trunk, which connects to the branches. And the branches of the tree would represent transitional fossils, and the leaves at the end of the branches are the organisms we see exist today. When I was an atheist, I was fascinated with the evolutionary worldview, and I had a knee-jerk reaction to label anyone who rejected macroevolution as ignorant. Because I was told my entire life that humans came about by macroevolution, and I knew that the majority of professional biologists believed in evolution, I was sure that only fools would reject it. During my research into evolution while studying for my undergraduate degree, I began to notice that there were many holes in the arguments for molecules to man evolution. As noted earlier, the entire premise of Darwinian evolution is that random mutations happen in DNA and then natural selection results in the less fit organisms dying out and the more fit organisms thriving. There are two major assumptions present in this idea, namely that mutations can increase the quality of information in the genome and that the most fit organisms tend to survive more than the lesser fit organisms. Concerning the second assumption, there's simply no way of confirming that the organisms most fit for that certain environment did in fact survive. This is because there are multiple factors which affect an organism's ability to survive and pass on its genes. At many times, nature produces the survival of the luckiest rather than the survival of the fittest. The assumption that mutations can add new information to your DNA is completely unsupported by science and actually contrary to the observable evidence. DNA is a code which contains the information on how to build organisms. Human DNA is a book made up of three billion letters, called base pairs, that describes how to build a human being. Mutations occur when a mistake happens in the copying of these base pairs, such as a base pair being copied twice, or failing to get copied at all. The thing is, these mistakes never lead to an increase in information in DNA. Sure, minor changes happen, but this is only horizontal change as far as complexity is concerned. What evolutionists need is a vertical change in the complexity of DNA, which has never been observed. Hence, expecting that a bunch of microevolutionary changes will eventually lead to macroevolution is the equivalent of expecting to get a cup of coffee by adding a bunch of orange juice drops to a cup of water. Of course, this will never produce a cup of coffee because the drops of orange juice are fundamentally different than drops of coffee. Likewise, the minor changes caused by microevolution are not just smaller than the changes assumed to be caused by macroevolution, they are completely different in nature. A dog can have an immense amount of change to its size, shape, color, and fur texture, yet those types of changes will never result in the dog 
growing a pair of functional wings so it can fly, or gills so it can breathe underwater. This is because microevolution simply scrambles existing characteristics and is not capable of producing completely new and functional organs. And this can be seen by evidence derived from laboratory experiments which try to force evolution on organisms under controlled environments. Evolutionists have been trying to force macroevolution on fruit flies since the early 1900s. The flies have been selectively bred for specific mutations and have even undergone chemical and radiation exposure in order to force mutations and speed up the evolutionary process, yet they have achieved nothing more than crippled wings and different colored eyes. Lane Lester, who holds a PhD in genetics, stated that fruit flies refuse to become anything but fruit flies under any circumstances yet devised. A 35-year experiment on hundreds of generations of fruit flies, see Burke et al. 2010, also failed to show even the slightest bit of macroevolution. The researchers stated that despite decades of sustained selection in relatively small, sexually reproducing laboratory populations, selection did not lead to the fixation of newly arising, unconditionally advantageous alleles. This statement is simply a long way of saying that they got nothing. Any farmer or animal breeder could have easily predicted these experiments' outcomes. Variation is possible, but the further away you get from the norm, the more problems you will encounter. This is because there is a genetic limit which cannot be surpassed. Cows have been selectively bred to be larger in size for many years now, but there will never be a cow the size of the Statue of Liberty. There are limits to variation. While these experiments are proof for microevolution, they discredit the idea of macroevolution. Bacteria are also a favorite of evolutionists, yet after decades of experimentation, the bacteria remain bacteria. Sure, just like the fruit flies, there have been minor changes, such as resistance to certain antibiotics due to defective proteins, or the ability to grow on citrate under new conditions, but these minor changes are all that we ever observe, even after tens of thousands of generations of bacteria. There is never a change in the fundamental nature of the bacteria. Darwin's finches are another example of these minor changes. If you recall, Darwin noted that he witnessed finches that had different beak sizes based on where they lived when he visited the Galapagos Islands. And uh, that's usually heralded as his you know, kind of light bulb moment of realizing that organisms change. But again, the change in beak sizes of finches is much, much different than believing that eventually little changes like that could lead a single cell to turn in to a donkey. The ability to have different beak sizes does not represent any major change in the DNA, and it is illegitimate to assume that these small alterations can lead to organisms changing across the family level. It must be noted that both controlled experiments and observations in nature fail to provide any solid evidence for macroevolution. And while we just looked over a few examples of controlled experiments, we're now going to look at one of the most common natural mutations, which is boasted about by evolutionists in an attempt to support macroevolution, which is a mutated version of a protein called hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is a protein found on red blood cells, and its main job is to carry oxygen throughout the bloodstream. People who have a certain mutation which affects their hemoglobin are resistant to malaria because the mutation alters the shape of the red blood cells 
which is where the malarial parasite latches onto. Because of this benefit, the hemoglobin mutation is common in certain parts of Africa where malaria is rampant. However, this mutation has one major downside. It causes blood cells to lose their natural shape and ultimately results in sickle cell anemia. Sickle cell anemia occurs when red blood cells lose their normal round shape and become shaped like a sickle. This is a very serious condition which causes stroke, spleen and kidney dysfunction, chronic pain, and a drastically shortened lifespan. Of course this is not beneficial at all and serves to be very harmful, but it just so happens that people with sickle cell anemia tend to outlive those who have malaria. And this is very similar to the mutations of the bacteria becoming resistant to antibiotics. Yes, the mutated bacteria are resistant to antibiotics, but that resistance comes at a cost because it's usually caused by a defective protein in which the bacteria actually functions less efficiently than its other unmutated family. And the information for this mutation, which causes people to have sickle cell anemia but be resistant to malaria, can be found in an article titled How Malaria Has Affected the Human Genome and What Human Genetics Can Teach Us About Malaria, published in the American Journal of Human Genetics. Uh, there's another article called Sickle Hemoglobin Allele and Sickle Cell Disease, a huge review published in the American Journal of Epidemiology. And there's another article titled Sickle Cell Trait and the Risk of Plasmodium falciparum Malaria and the Other Childhood Diseases, published in the Journal of Infectious Diseases. And here's a list of some other mutations found in humans. Color blindness, cystic fibrosis, Down syndrome, Turner syndrome, spinal muscular atrophy, hemophilia, and Huntington's disease. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but all of these mutations listed are terrible diseases which you would never want to experience. Virtually every mutation is harmful to the organism that has it and causes a crippled, shorter, and oftentimes miserable life. This is only to be expected, of course, because mutations are the result of an error in the DNA. Expecting mutations to improve the quality of DNA is like expecting that you can vastly improve your computer by putting a giant magnet over it. And as just seen by the example of sickle cell anemia and malaria, even mutations which appear to be beneficial in a certain environment still fail to improve the complexity of DNA and are oftentimes harmful. Based on the evidence gathered by observing mutations, we see that in order to actually believe that mutations have increased DNA complexity, to the point of creating an organism as intricate as a human being is lunacy. Such a belief is an intellectually dishonest and unscientific act of blind faith. So far, we've seen that by definition, Darwinian evolution falls into the realm of philosophy rather than science. We've also seen that there is no observable evidence which supports macroevolution as being true, and that observational data actually contradicts the hypothesis of evolution. Now we're going to look at fossils. And one interesting thing to note is that according to the evolutionary timeline, almost all major animal phyla appear without any good evidence of how they evolved from single-celled organisms. This is known as the Cambrian explosion and is generally regarded as very problematic for evolution, seeing as some of the greatest changes in biological history should have taken place in this period. In fact, in an article which was published in the journal Scientific American in 1992, 
evolutionary biologist and professor Jeffrey Leventon referred to the Cambrian explosion as evolutionary biology's deepest paradox because this data simply does not fit with the evolutionary story of life. The fossils found in the Cambrian explosion include complex animals such as fish, trilobites, worms, jellyfish, mollusks, and sea cucumbers, and they all appear supposedly within 20 million years of each other, with no evidence of gradual change from simpler unicellular life forms. As discussed in the previous two episodes concerning atheism, the law of biogenesis is a death blow to atheism because it demonstrates that something supernatural had to have happened in order for our life to have arisen from non-life. Because evolutionists have no explanation for how life arose from non-life, the entire lower trunk of Darwin's tree of life is missing. The Cambrian explosion further demonstrates that Darwin's tree of life is nothing but a fairy tale because the absence of evidence during this time of supposed evolutionary change means that the upper part of the trunk of Darwin's tree of life is missing as well. Though there have been some attempts to try and fit the Cambrian explosion with the evolutionary story of origins, none of these explanations fully make sense of the evidence. Not only is the entire trunk of Darwin's tree of life missing, but it appears that based on the evidence derived from fossils, the branches of this tree of life are also missing. Let me explain what I mean by that. The branches of Darwin's tree of life refer to transitional fossils, which represent organisms that can clearly be seen to somewhat resemble their distant ancestors, yet also somewhat resemble their future descendants. Charles Darwin himself stated on page 138 of his famous book, The Origin of Species, that if my theory be true, numberless intermediate varieties linking most closely all the species of the same group together must assuredly have existed. Because evolution is all about ongoing change, if it were true, we would expect to find millions of organisms in the fossil record that are clearly at intermediate stages between two distinct kinds of organisms with incompletely formed body parts. A great analogy is to consider a cloud changing shape in the sky. It may look similar to a fish one minute, and then later resemble the shape of a dog, but in between the fish shape and the dog shape, it had to at some point not look exactly like a fish or exactly like a dog, but something in between. This is precisely the idea with supposed transitional fossils. They are intermediate forms that were in the process of developing new body parts and turning into different kinds of organisms, having traits from their recent ancestors and their soon-to-be descendants. So, since macroevolution relies on little changes over large amounts of time, we should not find a small handful of maybes when considering transitional fossils, but there should literally be millions of them. If every single living thing on Earth all came from one single cell, we should be finding new transitional fossils every day. Just think about all of the changes a single cell would have to make in order to turn into a whale, a dinosaur, a lion, a bear, or any other creature that's alive today. The fact of the matter is that no true transitional fossils with incomplete body parts have been found. Every organism, fossil or living, is fully formed and has a completed design. Even the small handful of fossils which evolutionists label as transitional forms are already fully formed organisms. There are never any fossils found of animals with a half-formed wing or half-formed feather or anything of that sort. 
What is very important to note is that the lack of transitional forms is even acknowledged by evolutionists. Evolutionists cannot even agree among themselves how they think macroevolution happened, making the point even more that evolution is a philosophical rather than a scientific belief, which requires faith to accept. Instead of questioning if evolution happened due to the lack of evidence from fossils, atheists imagined an idea known as punctuated equilibrium. Punctuated equilibrium was thought of by two of the most well-known and highly regarded evolutionists of the 20th century, Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldridge. Keep in mind that these men were dedicated to the idea of evolution so much that they still believed it even when the fossil evidence pointed against it. Now that's what I call faith. Concerning Darwin's tree of life, which is often portrayed in textbooks and shows different animals at the ends of the branches, Stephen Jay Gould stated the following. The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of their branches. The rest is inference, not the evidence of fossils. So here, Stephen Jay Gould is admitting that these trees that are in children's textbooks which show the evolution of a whale from a dog-like creature over 50 million years, all the things that are going between that, a lot of that is just simply made up. It's inference. It's imaginary. But of course, they make it look like it's such solid fact and like it's backed up by so much evidence in the textbooks, when in reality, it just exists in their own minds. Niles Eldridge also stated that Darwin's prediction of rampant, albeit gradual, change affecting all lineage through time is refuted. The record is there, and the record speaks for tremendous anatomical conservatism. Change in the manner Darwin expected is just not found in the fossil record. Now, these two evolutionary biologists recognize that the entire story of minor changes over many millions of years is not supported by the fossils, so they invented this idea of punctuated equilibrium, which asserts that instead of gradual changes, macroevolution happens in leaps and occurs so rapidly that it leaves virtually no evidence in the fossil record at all. It's interesting that if you ask an evolutionist why we can't observe macroevolution happening today, they will say because it takes too long. However, if you ask them why we can't find any true transitional fossils, they will say it's because macroevolution happened too fast to leave any trace of evidence. And now, biological changes cannot happen in such great leaps because that would require mutations so enormous that they would likely end up killing the organism, and for sexual organisms, the first mutant would have no available mate because major mutations often result in infertility. Another thing to point out is that many of the transitional forms depicted in textbooks and movies and stuff like that are based off of simple bone fragments. You know, there's usually never any soft tissue or anything like that found with these fragments. So the artists just render whatever they think that organism looked like. But regardless, the absence of transitional fossils, which is recognized by many evolutionists themselves, such as Niles Eldridge and Stephen Jay Gould, shows that the branches of Darwin's tree of life are also missing. So, so far, we've seen that the evolutionary view of origins is inconsistent with what we observe from fossils. The Cambrian explosion shows that there is no trunk to Darwin's tree of life and the immense lack of transitional fossils show that there are no branches to Darwin's tree of life. And just to reiterate, 
This reality has led many biologists to adopt the position of punctuated equilibrium, which posits that evolution happens rapidly and then appears dormant for long periods of time. Original Darwinian evolution is like a steady line of change, while punctuated equilibrium is like a staircase. Punctuated equilibrium truly demonstrates that evolution belongs in the realm of philosophy rather than science, because it is unfalsifiable. If the evidence is against it, then evolutionists simply rewrite their story of how it happened. Unfortunately, it never occurs to evolutionists that maybe macroevolution never happened at all. Another topic from fossils which pokes a hole in the story of evolution is the reality of what evolutionists call living fossils. Living fossils are organisms that have supposedly gone unchanged for tens or even hundreds of millions of years. Now, it must be pointed out that mutations and genetic variation are inevitable over time. So if they have the potential to produce macroevolution, then all species will eventually transform and become new species. One of the oldest living fossils is the horseshoe crab, which has apparently gone unchanged for approximately 450 million years. Now let's do some comparing. Evolutionists want you to believe that Pachycetus, a dog-like creature only 6 feet long, 100 pounds in weight, that walked on land, evolved into the bowhead whale within 50 million years. The bowhead whale often reaches 60 feet in length and weighs 200,000 pounds. That means in 50 million years, which is nothing compared to the evolutionary timeline, an animal increased its length by 1,000%, increased its weight by 200,000%, and developed hundreds of new body structures and biological functions. And while this all supposedly happened in only 50 million years, the horseshoe crab has stayed the exact same for 450 million years. This story told by evolution is awfully inconsistent. Another great example of a living fossil is the coelacanth, which has apparently remained unchanged for 400 million years. The coelacanth is a fish that was believed to have gone extinct 65 million years ago because its fossils have never been found in the same rock layers as organisms that are supposedly younger than 65 million years, and it was believed to be a transitional form between fish and amphibians. In fact, some evolutionists depicted coelacanths as being able to walk on land that is, until they were found alive in 1938. Not only were the coelacanths identical to their fossils, but they were also found to live at a depth of over 500 feet, having fully formed fins and not even being close to walking on land. Now let's do another little comparison between the coelacanth and supposed human evolution. Evolutionists typically believe that the most recent common ancestor of both humans and chimpanzees lived only 6 million years ago. Here's a video of famous atheist and evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins explaining this. People often ask me, if we're descended from chimpanzees, how come there are still chimpanzees? Well, we're not descended from chimpanzees. We're both descended from a common ancestor who lived there about 6 million years ago. That common ancestor then produced two branches, one of which went to us humans, and one of which went to chimpanzees, branching further to produce bonobos and common chimpanzees. We are all cousins. We are not descended from chimpanzees. 
Now, just like when we compared the horseshoe crab to the evolutionary story of whales, when we compare the coelacanth to the supposed evolution of humans, the story is grossly inconsistent. Coelacanths apparently remained unchanged for 400 million years, yet human beings are said to have evolved from a creature which was less complex than a chimpanzee in just 6 million years. That takes quite a bit of faith to believe. So far, we've seen that evidence from DNA mutations and fossils, which are two fields that evolutionists usually try and say are the best support for their hypothesis, actually present serious problems for their position. Furthermore, the fact that thousands of generations of bacteria and fruit flies fail to show any signs of macroevolution, even after being purposefully mutated in an attempt to force genetic mutations onto their DNA, further supports the fact that there are limits to variation. For our last topic of this episode, we will look at something that is particularly popular among evolutionists, which is the similarity between human and chimp DNA. For decades, it has been touted that human beings and chimpanzees are 99% similar in their DNA. Something interesting to note is that they have been saying this since 1975, which was over 25 years before the human or chimp genome had been fully mapped. And so that shows from the very start, this mantra has not been based in solid science. That's because the 99% figure doesn't take into account the entire genome of humans or chimps but rather deals with only segments of human and chimp DNA. First, it must be noted that even if this were the case, this does not definitively support the idea that humans share an ancestor with chimps because the same data makes sense in the creationist worldview. Because God created all life and used the same code, which is DNA, to create different kinds of organisms, it would make sense that since chimpanzees appear to be the most physically similar to humans than any other animal, of course their DNA would be the most similar to ours. Estimates have also shown that humans share over 50% of their DNA with bananas. More recent estimates about the similarity between human and chimpanzee DNA have fallen to about 95%. And in 2011, PhD geneticist Jeffrey P. Tompkins' analysis concluded that a very conservative estimate of human-chimp DNA similarity genome-wide is 86.4 to 88.9%. It is noteworthy that the parameters that produce the longest and more statistically robust alignments also produced the lowest similarities. Zoologist Pascal Gagnon from UC San Diego admitted that for many, many years, the 1% difference served us well because it was underappreciated how similar we were. Now it's totally clear that it's more of a hindrance for understanding than a help. It is finally becoming mainstream knowledge that the claim that humans and chimpanzees are 99% similar in DNA appears to be false. We see here that estimates of human and chimp DNA similarity are all over the board and that it is likely less than 99%. However, we are going to be generous and assume that humans do share a full 99% of their DNA with chimps. Now it's time to run some numbers. Dr. Donald Batten, PhD in plant physiology, notes the following. Imagine a population of 100,000 apes, the putative progenitors of humans. Suppose that a male and a female both received a mutation so beneficial that they outsurvived everyone else. All the rest of the population died out all 99,998 of them. 
And then the surviving pair had enough offspring to replenish the population in one generation, and this repeated every generation, every 20 years, for 10 million years, more than the supposed time since the last common ancestors of humans and apes. That would mean that 500,000 beneficial mutations could be added to the population. Even with this completely unrealistic scenario, which maximizes evolutionary progress, only about 0.02% of the human genome could be generated, considering that the difference between the DNA of a human and a chimp, our supposed closest living relative, is greater than 5%, evolution has an obvious problem in explaining the origin of the genetic information in a creature such as a human. So as we can see here, even with this physically impossible scenario, only 500,000 beneficial mutations could have formed, but evolutionists need there to be over 150 million in order for their idea to have any validity. Because our DNA is 3 billion base pairs long, 5% of that is 150 million. So even with this impossibly favorable scenario, the evolutionary fairy tale that we share a common ancestor with chimps 6 to 8 million years ago is completely unscientific and physically impossible. This dilemma is an example of a concept known as Haldane's Dilemma, which recognizes the fact that many factors limit the speed at which beneficial mutations can spread throughout a population. So even if humans and chimps did share 99% of their DNA, the evolutionary story that we share a common ancestor 6 to 8 million years ago is still biologically and mathematically impossible. To sum up the evidence from this podcast, we've seen that variation among organisms is obviously possible and happens all around us every day. This variation is termed microevolution by evolutionists and has been scientifically proven to be true by experimentation and observation. The problem is when evolutionists assume that these small changes in organisms can eventually lead to the development of brand new information in DNA that produces complex bone structures, functional tissues, etc. Experiments on fruit flies and bacteria, as well as observations of mutations in nature such as sickle cell anemia, Down syndrome, Turner syndrome, and more, all demonstrate that science shows mutations cannot add quality information to the genome and that these mutations are virtually always harmful. Furthermore, the Cambrian explosion, the absence of transitional fossils, and organisms termed living fossils show that the fossil record totally debunks the evolutionary story of life. Lastly, we saw that even if humans and chimpanzees did share 99% of their DNA, it would still be biologically and mathematically impossible for a change of 1%, which is 30 million base changes, to occur in the supposed 6 million years since our species split. To wrap up this episode, I want to talk a little bit about the mindset of evolution. The reality that so many people blindly accept evolution is often related to the story of the emperor's new clothes. In the story, two tricksters tell an emperor that they can make him a special suit. The tricksters tell the emperor that only those who are intelligent can see the suit. If someone is stupid or ignorant, then the clothes will be invisible to them. Of course, there is no such thing as this special suit, but the emperor's pride leads him to proceed to purchase this suit 
from the tricksters, and he then rides down the streets to show it off. The citizens have all been told that only fools are unable to see the suit, so everybody pretends that the suit exists and that they can see it. That is, until a young child yells out from the crowd that the emperor is in fact naked. Once the citizens' fear of looking stupid goes away by the young child's exclamation, they all start to acknowledge that the emperor is indeed naked. And this story relates to evolution because nobody wants to doubt it due to fear of appearing foolish. The irony is that if you ask most people, even many biologists, why they believe in evolution, they'll usually say that it's because most high-level biologists believe it is true. Anyone with a grounding in logic realizes that this response is a complete failure because it provides no evidence. Instead, it commits two logical fallacies, those being an appeal to authority and an appeal to the majority opinion. Just because the majority of people who appear to be an authority in a certain field believe something, that does not mean it is true. The only thing that matters in the realm of truth is the evidence, and as we have just seen, the evidence is strongly against evolution. What's interesting is that there is a rising group of scientists and academics that are voicing their serious doubt about the validity of Darwinian evolution. Some of the big names involved in the intelligent design movement are Stephen Meyer, David Berlinski, and Michael Behe. These are all very intelligent men who have doctorate degrees from Cambridge, Princeton, and the University of Pennsylvania, respectively. Here's a short video clip of David Berlinski pointing out the major problem for evolutionists that we discussed earlier in this episode, which is that laboratory experiments appear to debunk the idea of macroevolution. And finally, there's the utter absence of laboratory evidence. I mean, random variation, natural selection, we should be able to stop manipulating organisms. When we look at dogs, no matter how far back we go, it's dogs. When we look at bacteria, no matter what we do, they stay bugs. They don't change in their fundamental nature. There seems to be some sort of an inherent species limitation, and we have no good explanation for this in terms of Darwinian theory. We should have far more flexibility, far more plasticity under laboratory conditions than we actually do if Darwinian theory or anything like that were correct. What we see in nature, what we see in the laboratory, is very highly bounded variation, cyclic variation. That's, for example, bin, um, uh, finch beaks in the Galap uh, Galapagos Island. That's about all we see. Small variation. Why is that if Darwinian theory is correct? These are evidentiary points that I think need to be stressed, need to be examined openly, honestly. And they never are, of course. Never are. Something quite comical is that if you look up these intelligent design advocates on Wikipedia, you can smell the atheist bias through the articles. For example, the Wikipedia page on David Berlinski opens with the sentence that David Berlinski is an American author who has written books about mathematics and the history of science as well as fiction. An opponent of evolution, he is a senior fellow of the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture an organization dedicated to promulgating the pseudoscience of intelligent design. The Wikipedia page of Stephen Meyer opens by saying that Stephen C. Meyer is an American author and former educator. He is an advocate of intelligent design, a pseudoscientific creationist argument for the existence of God, presented with the claim that it is an evidence-based scientific theory. 
and see it's just so funny seeing the atheist bias in these articles and how they automatically just label intelligent design as pseudoscience which is a logical fallacy known as poisoning the well before you present any arguments or evidence for your position you start out by saying oh yeah that position that my opponent believes it's it's not true it's obviously a joke wikipedia is just one of the many examples of where when evolutionists have power they openly mock the idea of intelligent design by resorting to name calling when you actually examine the evidence and follow the science however it's the evolutionary position that is the foolish one one of the biggest stepping stones to me becoming a christian was actually watching debates between creationists and evolutionists and realizing that even though evolutionists will mock creationists as being faith-filled imbeciles their belief takes much more faith to believe in and actually contradicts the available evidence now i want to point out the religious nature of evolution by playing a short clip of neil degrasse tyson famous scientist uh, expressing his thoughts on evolution and this clip is from episode two of season one of the television series cosmos a space-time odyssey here it is some claim that evolution is just a theory as if it were merely an opinion the theory of evolution like the theory of gravity is a scientific fact evolution really happened accepting our kinship with all life on earth is not only solid science in my view it's also a soaring spiritual experience now the first thing about this quote i want to point out is that tyson dogmatically states that evolution is a fact. He even compares it to the law of gravity. This is philosophically errant because gravity has been observed and experimented on a countless number of times and has therefore been scientifically proven. However, even if the hypothesis of evolution was supported by a mass amount of evidence, which we have discovered that it is not, it still can never be scientifically proven because it is thought to have taken place in the past and is therefore unobservable. When evolutionists compare evolution to gravity, this is simply an illogical word game with the goal of making anyone who doesn't believe in evolution look stupid. It is also interesting to note how Tyson admits that he views the evolutionary position of origins as being a soaring spiritual experience demonstrating the religious nature that is tucked away in the story of evolution. Because religion aims to answer life's biggest questions, such as where did we come from, who are we, where are we going, etc., all human beings are naturally religious because we have all thought about these questions at one point or another. Darwinian evolution is just another pagan religion which is disguised by its followers as science. But it's important to point out that just because a belief system does not invoke a supernatural creator, this does not automatically disqualify it from being a religion. If a belief system aims to answer life's biggest questions and requires faith to believe in it, then it is religious in nature, just like evolution. And this relates to the first chapter of the book of Romans, where Paul notes that there are people who reject God and decide to worship the creature instead of the creator. Paul says the following, For the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, 
so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. It almost seems like Romans 1 describes evolution to the T. Instead of glorifying God as the Creator, evolutionists have glorified lower animals as being their Creator, because according to evolution, these lower organisms have been the stepping stones to the creation of human beings. Indeed, atheists worship and serve the creature more than the creator, and just like Paul said, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Just like in Paul's day, many people who are often viewed as intelligent by the world today have actually let their naturalistic biases affect how they interpret the evidence, and therefore have become fools. This all connects to what Paul wrote to his letter to Timothy some 2,000 years ago, that during the latter times, there will be people who are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Famous atheist and evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins wrote the following words in his book, Defending Evolution, titled The Greatest Show on Earth. Evolution is a fact, beyond reasonable doubt, beyond serious doubt, beyond sane, informed, intelligent doubt, beyond doubt, evolution is a fact. That didn't have to be true. It is not self-evidently, tautologically, obviously true. And there was a time when most people, even educated people, thought it wasn't. It didn't have to be true, but it is. And Richard Dawkins calls evolution the only game in town, the greatest show on earth. Now, aside from Dawkins' dogmatic statements that evolution is a fact, he is right in that if you are an atheist, Evolution is the only game in town, because that is the only explanation an atheist could have for how life as we know it came into existence. Because we have just seen evidence that debunks evolution, however, there is no way that atheism can be true. Darwinian evolution, the gateway to atheism, has just crumbled under the weight of the scientific evidence. Though atheists may have fooled themselves into thinking that they don't believe in God because of science or logic, the true reason they reject God is because of their own hearts. A quote that does well to demonstrate this fact can be found by atheist and New York University professor of philosophy and law emeritus Thomas Nagel. Nagel states that, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Now, it just so happens that Jesus Christ pointed out exactly what Thomas Nagel stated 2,000 years ago in John 3, 16 to 20. Now, of course, everybody's heard John 3, 16, the most popular Bible verse in the world. But let's see what Jesus says directly after he says that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, 
that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, unless his deeds should be reproved. And that is so true. Right there, Jesus says, the condemnation is that light. God, the creator of the universe, has come into the world, but because men loved darkness rather than light, because their hearts did not want God to exist, did not want to acknowledge God, they rejected him. And that's because their deeds were evil. Because, as stated before, Christianity is the most humbling belief system there is. Because it makes you acknowledge that you are a guilty sinner. Your actions are evil. Jesus Christ said there is none good, no, not one. He said that all people are inherently evil because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's a harsh truth to accept. But on the other side of that coin is the most beautiful truth, is that God entered his creation as the man Jesus Christ, lived a perfect, sinless life for your behalf. He was crucified, buried, and rose from the dead three days later, so that if you accept by faith alone his atoning sacrifice, you will receive eternal life and be justified before God, and your sins have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so that is the two-sided coin of the gospel. It illuminates the most harsh truth one can accept, but also the most beautiful. As the Bible also says in Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, because the bottom line is that it is foolish to deny all of the strong evidence for God's existence. And if you are an atheist, I pray that you have an honest conversation with yourself about why you reject God. I pray that you're able to humble yourself enough to call out to God and accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you may escape the penalty for your sins, which is an eternity in hell, and instead become a child of God who will spend eternity in paradise with our perfect Father. That concludes our three-part series on atheism. I truly appreciate you all for taking the time to listen to this podcast and seek out the truth. I pray your faith in God has been strengthened and that you can share this information with others. Have a good day.